Welcome to the Rad Awakenings Podcast. I'm Kay He. When was the last time you became aware of something deep, provocative, and uncomfortable? In these moments, we level up in our work, our creativity, and most importantly, in our own heads. Each episode, our guests will describe their Rad Awakenings. The conversations are real, raw, and will share in both struggle and joy. Before we jump into today's episode, I wanted to let you know about our next rad webinar. Becoming a blogger has been hands down one of the most important skills I've learned since I left the corporate world. It has opened doors beyond my wildest imagination, thrust me into important conversations, and is starting to contribute to me making money. But more importantly, it's made me a better thinker and purveyor of ideas. But I often get asked about blogging. How did I start? Is it really useful? What platform should I use? Should I use WordPress? And if I don't have a social following, is it worth it? I'm excited to answer all of these questions on our upcoming webinar, How to Start Blogging. To sign up, go to bit.ly slash radblog. That's bit.ly slash radblog, all lowercase. See you soon. Today's guest is Abby Raffel. Abby is the founder of the Redwoods Initiative, an investment education company for wealthy families. Abby grew up in a two-stoplight town in rural Florida, where she raised hogs and swam competitively. She was exposed to leadership at a young age when she joined the FFA, the Future Farmers of America, a youth organization promoting agricultural jobs. In college, she started modeling and moved to New York with two suitcases, two phone numbers, and a couple thousand bucks. But in her words, as a broken B-rate model, she then went on to teach young girls about self-esteem and then founded the Redwoods Initiative, where she helps wealthy families navigate their money. And we're talking wealthy families with a capital W. I know you'll be just as surprised as me to hear that just because you have money, it does not guarantee fulfillment and meaning. Abby and I also discuss self-improvement and privilege, the role of hyper-agents in making change happen and confronting your shadow, the part about you that you're ashamed of or deny. Please enjoy my conversation with my friend, Abby Raffel. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Rad Awakenings podcast. Today's guest is Abby Raffel. Hello. Hi. Thanks for having me. I was reading about your bio. You said you grew up in rural Florida. Mm-hmm. Take us to rural Florida because I think our audience has probably not spent a lot of time there. Well, the bigger cities are Gainesville, the University of Florida, or Jacksonville, or St. Augustine on the beach. But I grew up right in the middle of there. So when I was born, there was actually no red light. And we had to drive 45 minutes to a grocery store. And now there's two red lights in the town. So very rural, raising hogs, hunting gators, judging chickens. I was in the FFA, Future Farmers of America. So it it was a beautiful life with lakes and hunting, fishing, playing outside with no fences. So how big is a town with one stoplight? A couple of hundred. Like our high school, the town that I grew up in was called Interlochen. There were probably 200 kids in my graduating class, which might seem big, but it's because they would come from all these other towns. 
and you know they might be bussed in from an hour away. Yeah. Uh, what was the major industry of, of that area? Back then, industry would be Florida Power and Light, so electric, utility. Then there was also timber, so Georgia Pacific. And then most people would work maybe in the school systems. And there was one hospital in the county, which is actually where my mom worked. So the reason why my parents chose that town was because my dad's a veterinarian and an entrepreneur. And so he wanted to open an animal clinic in an area that didn't have one. And so they, they chose the middle of nowhere to be a satellite for his first vet business. Oh, wow. What were you like in high school? Uh, I have a theory. Yeah. Well, my mom still lives in the house where I, I was born. So they bought it in April and I was born in August. So in high school, I was class president for four years. I was super opinionated. You know, I would ask to speak at any award ceremony or I would enter speaking competitions just for fun. But I mean, I had friends, a lot of friends. And then I went through a period actually in my junior, senior year where I just they actually started to call me the loner, right? Like I was very social at one point and then I think teenagers just go through their like who am I period and I found myself like switching friends and moving to the back of the class and becoming a loner for a period of time too. Maintaining class president status. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and did you travel a lot? No. I mean, the only traveling we really did was on weekends for swim meets because I was a competitive swimmer. But that was younger when I was younger. But we never, I think, I mean, as a family, we went to Utah once and then North Carolina and then maybe a little bit older, we would go to Colorado. But I don't think I, I didn't leave the country until I had graduated high school. And so you mentioned, what was it? F, F, FFA, FFA, Future Farmers of America. When you first told me about that, I had never heard of it. I don't think I've ever heard of it since. Tell us about FFA. The FFA is a national youth organization, and I'm sure they've changed a lot from the 25 years ago that I was a member. Their focus is on ag education and career development in the agricultural fields, but they also had a huge leadership development component. And so that's what really connected me to the organization. More so, as I mentioned, I was a competitive swimmer and I was had gone through a transition from not being in the water for three months after an injury. And and we just had a really awesome teacher. And I tell people, like, it could have been future button makers of America, but there was this amazing teacher, Mr. Broker. And Mr. Broker. Mr. Broker. And like he, stock broker. Stock broker, yeah. <laughs> That's an and awesome name. he was just fun and kind, and he had just great kids in the after school program. And so I started to get involved and raised hogs for the county fair, but then also did public speaking competitions and parliamentary procedure, and then started to run for offices, of course, within the FFA. But they have this huge leadership component, and it's such a positive youth organization. So it's an after school, but like a public after-school program. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Got it. And are they preparing you for a certain type of life? Yeah. So all of these, I don't even know if they have them in school anymore, but where I grew up, you had vocational circuit when you got into middle school. So you had the business course, the shop class, the home, home ex, home economics, sewing, cooking, and then you had ag. And so each one of those groups have clubs, after school clubs. And so the FFA, ideally, they're there to help. Their, their long-term focus is for an appreciation in agriculture, but 
to develop careers in agriculture. And so I was on that track just because I was so involved in the organization, but then decided to go in another direction. Got it. I went to high school in New York and in kind of my my New York peers, like public or private school, high school, there was like no vocational. I wonder if that's more of like a rural first like deeply cosmopolitan difference. It's just interesting to hear that like your peers or even you might be on a on a more vocational track at some point in high school. Yeah, I think so because you know those are the jobs that are in the in the community. So if you weren't going to go into the school system or the hospital system, you might be a welder, or an electrician, or work for a local farm. And so yeah, that's that's a big reason why yeah. these organizations are there for job training yeah. in the future, interests and strengths. And you're graduating high school. What's the career? plan at that point in time? Well, it was to pursue more FFA. So I actually ran for Florida ambassador office. So I took a gap year between high school and college, and I served the state of Florida as a officer for the FFA. And that was a really amazing experience because here I am at 18 years old, and I actually have like an allowance, a stipend every day. And, you know, we'd have to do expense reports. And I would go around to schools and I would be a keynote leadership speaker in other schools programs, inspiring people to become members of the FFA. And then we would go to camps or county fairs and do speaking and try to recruit members. And it was a really interesting skill set. I remember like one day at a county fair talking to a five-year-old and then turning around and talking to a superintendent of a county school system. So that skill set of being able to just talk to two completely different age groups and connect was a really great skill set for the future. So the the career focus originally was going to be agricultural education, just because that was the scholarship I got. And then after I I started of the year of the ambassador program, I was like, maybe communications, PR for some type of company or business. Mm -hmm. You took a gap year. You were accepted into college. Accepted in college. In fact, through the FFA, I got a full ride to the University of Florida. So anyone who knows SEC football, the Gators, I grew up with an orange and blue Christmas tree. So it was a really big deal. Like everybody in my family went to the University of Florida, brothers, sisters, parents. It was like part of our DNA. We bleed orange and blue, as they say. So I had a full ride of scholarship. I didn't even have to apply to college like people normally do through FFA. So and it was going to be a full ride. And I took a summer course and I was supposed to start, I think, in a week. So it was like mid-April. And my mom was taking me to the apartment to live with my roommates. I was going to sign the lease. And I just said, I can't do this, Ma. You know, I don't want to go to the University of Florida. So I decided a week before my freshman year just to bail on a full scholarship at the University of Florida. Oh, wow. Yeah. What did Ma say? Mom, Ma said, okay. My mom always knew, like, I had this intuition, and she said, well, what are you going to do? And the other big thing is, is coming from such a small town, then going to Gainesville, which is where all my brothers and sisters and stepbrother, sister, family lived, and my dad, I, I didn't feel like I was really stepping into my own. I wanted to kind of a, going to a small town, but going to a bigger small town. So I decided to enroll in community college. My grades were good enough that I could also get a scholarship there and not have to pay tuition. So I moved to St. Augustine, Florida on the beach and decided to go to community college for two years. Did you have a plan or you? No. <laughs> no, I think I, I wanted to spread my wings. I wanted to build 
I think my own sense of self and identity in a new bigger place. And so no one in our family other than an aunt lived in that area. I was actually still planning on doing one more year with the FFA as a national ambassador, but that didn't come through. But instead, they have a national leadership program where they would hire college students to deliver leadership workshops to high schoolers around the country. So that's when I really started to travel. So I did that for two years. It was great. They would pay us like 500 bucks a weekend and, you know, fly all over the country to deliver leadership workshops to high schoolers. And then after the two years, I was going to figure out where I would go for the next two years. Which was? I decided on Jacksonville University. And that was because by that point, I had started to do a little bit of commercial modeling. And I was still traveling, speaking. And my professor in communications, speech, like a speech coach, really thought I had potential. And he was an adjunct professor at Jacksonville University. So it was an easy transition for me to move an hour away. And then because it was such a small university, the professors allowed me to travel. So I was in photo shoots, or I might be on set doing a commercial, or I might be in California speaking. And I I was able to miss a lot of school because it was such a small university. And I knew the professors and they supported, you know, kind of basically working while in college, professionally working. And you're an 18 to 20-ish year old woman who's a college student traveling the country giving leadership talks for this prestigious institution. And then commercial when you say commercial modeling, it's just that professional modeling? Yeah, yeah. So like more bridal show or like the nurse in an advertisement or a flight attendant. How did you get into that world? This other professor, Dr. Green, so there's a theme of great teachers in my life, right? He saw me speak. So there was, he. we had to do a, a speech and he didn't know I was a public speaker because I was actually trained through the FFA by the country's top educators and speakers of how to deliver these group programs with 150 kids. As an 18 or as a teenager. Yeah, yeah. That's such a life advantage. Yeah, I mean, I was, by the time I was 18, I was speaking in front of 10,000 people, easily 2,000. And I would make my mom take off of work to take me to a public speaking competition. I just always challenged myself there. And that's a that's a funny story that goes back to fourth grade. But so Dr. Green saw me speak and he said, whoa, you have some potential here. And I had jokingly said I wanted to be Miss America because I wanted a platform on personal growth. And so he was like, you really have potential here. And I'm like, I don't I don't know how to put on makeup, much less red lipstick. And I don't even know how to wear high heels. Remember, I mean, I raised hogs and I was wearing boots. So he was like, you should in Jacksonville, there's a modeling school and an agency. Maybe you would want to check that out. So I did. And that's how I got into it. Wow. Did you like it? I did. I did. I, I really loved the woman who owned the agency. And it was interesting. That was another theme of my life because then she asked me to start working with new models and talent as they came on board. So I was kind of a mentor and a big sister to some of the younger ones. And I, I enjoyed the connections with others. By the time I got to New York and started a model, well, I was berate. I wasn't, I mean, it's a 
very competitive world and you needed to lose weight and change your hair color and dye your teeth and you're and then you still need to make money before you know you, you can even make all those changes so in the end I don't think I was cut out for it I don't really like being told how to dress or what to do or how to present myself in the world yeah yeah the Jacksonville modeling scene and the New York City modeling scene are probably a little bit different very different and is that what took got you to New York well, yeah. I mean, so while I was traveling with the FFA to all these major cities, I'd gone to Chicago and Dallas and San Francisco and New York. New York just called me. It was this am- amazing place. It was a dream. And so I worked for, you know, my junior and senior year, saved all the money I could, my grad- graduation money, and I sold everything. And I had two phone numbers and two suitcases and a one-way ticket. I bought my ticket on the day of the blackout in 2003. Okay. Oh, so the one-way ticket. I was up here in 21 days. I moved up on August 31st of 2003. And it was with the vision that New York was a place where big business could make a difference. And modeling, I thought, could be that avenue because I was really interested in the inner beauty conversation and working with self-esteem and with teen and tween girls and trying to bridge that more into a spokesmodeling place. So that was the intention for coming up here. And it sounds like the movie script, right? I can almost see the trailer. It's like a, a young Abby wrestling hogs and kind of this little Jacksonville modeling, kind of a one, one woman shop agency, and then plane ticket to New York. What were the biggest surprises to you about moving to New York at that point in your life? how much taxi cabs cost <laughs> and how you can blow your entire savings on taking a taxi across town that was a surprise i think i think one of the things is is you know when you come from florida and you save this nest egg of well, let's say it was $10,000 and you come to new york like how quickly that goes with your first apartment and you know maybe Broker's I sh- exactly like- and just all these other expenses and I think that was one of the biggest surprises and then there's just the the amazing surprise of all the people you know the diversity of all different types of relationships that you can create that's pretty magical and did you have a social group that you kind of landed into no I had two phone numbers. So the one was a bartender friend who lived in Brooklyn, Williamsburg, and another was a scout, a modeling scout. So it was through the modeling scout that I ended up getting my first job at like a modeling and acting school. So there was that was one of the toughest pieces too, because the modeling and, and fashion industry, the entertainment industry is really to connect as in the nightlife. And so when you're going out at 10 o'clock at night and you're meeting people and you know late dinners, it's hard to build those quality relationships because you don't really know who the person is over like a loud beat and drinks. So that was hard. I mean, there's definitely some some lonely periods that first year of just who am I and who are my friends? I'm just seeing the culture shock of probably the rowdiest bar in in Florida and early 2000s New York modeling scene. Did the culture shock, how did it impact you? Well, the first night I went out to dinner in New York City was actually at the Soho House. So I, I came from, you know, rural North Florida to then going to a, a private social club. I loved it. Like I was just eyes 
smiles. It was it was awesome. I mean, I think my mom and dad had some fears, more so my dad. You know, my mom was like, just behave, be smart, you know, good good Southern values. And my dad, I think, was worried just this big world and people he didn't know and how was I going to make it and was it a safe place, you know, from the old movies that you would watch from the 80s. And so now, now they both love New York and that have good friends. But so I think it was more of excitement and energy and this anticipation of of this newness of all different types of people, not just New Yorkers, right? Because you there's Europeans and, you know, people from South America all at the same table. And how long did you do the modeling in the city? Yeah, for about two years. But I again I was I was broke. So I, I was a B rate model. So I was doing some modeling, then I was booking models and then I was doing some PR with like hair and makeup companies, even one out in San Francisco or Sacramento. The I cocktail waitress, which was one of the worst experiences of my life. I tried to wait tables. You know, you do anything and everything you could do to get by. Then I started to go work, move a little bit more into the beauty business. So I was working with beauty brands, so hair and makeup products when they would launch. And I was actually a trainer. So going back to this education piece, I was training sales staff at Bergdorf or Sephora about the new product in the way that I work with young models and actors. So that was kind of a theme. So I did that for about two years until I think I hit rock bottom, you know, the the quarter life crisis. Yeah, okay. And so this is New York rock bottom. The fashion career didn't pan out or wasn't what you thought it would be. What was next? Well, there were a lot of tears, you know, and I was completely broke. I mean, I remember like a, the weekend of one of the blizzards. I only had enough for spaghetti and bread and cheese and milk, right? Living with roommates? Living with roommates, yeah. And you have like three days and literally that's all that's going to get you through a blizzard. And I couldn't even go out on a date because I didn't have enough money to get in a cab or a bus at that point, you know? So just really hard times of struggling and feeling broke and not enjoying the space of the literal beauty business. And so it was a lot of internal reflection. And I had started to work with an acupuncturist and she really helped guide me into more of what my soul's purpose was and what my calling was and kind of these themes and all these different jobs that I was taking on, which was a theme of education, of self-discovery, of personal growth and self-esteem. It was a bit serendipitous, you know, through some some connections. I actually met a philanthropist, a private philanthropist that funded social entrepreneurs, and he suggested that I submit an application to be funded to go to grad school for focused on self-esteem for teen and tween girls. And so that was my pivot point. Literally, I was at my lowest crying on a bus, you know, going to sell beauty products. And then they said, why don't you write an application to dive deep? deeper into this passion of self-discovery, self-esteem for teen and tween girls. So I applied and I, I got a fellowship to, to kickstart my master's degree at NYU. You had always developed the rapport with these, these younger women. Did you have self-esteem issues in your journey through I guess womanhood, and uh, I'm saying the question. I'm like, that's the stupidest question you've ever asked. <laughs> no, I, I, but I, I guess that there's what was some, my there's, journey? Like everyone has self esteem issues, but to be able to relate to someone else's self esteem issues is a different. You know, like where did that kind of meshing really take place? Or so I didn't really mature and get tall until like 
my late teenage years. I actually grew after high school, right? I'm 5'10 now. So my senior year jeans wouldn't fit me, but you know, by by the the start of my freshman year in college, because I had like grown taller. And so I had all of this FFA leadership development experience as a t- from ages 13 to 18. So I really started to grow deeper in myself and understand what my passions were, how to communicate, how to set goals. And so coming into the beauty business later than most girls do, I had already this really strong sense of myself. And so as a teenager, too, I mean, it's tough. Like it's your hormones and your body changes. And, you know, people start to you have the relationship between the other sexes confusing, you know, your relationship with your mom, etc. And so knowing that I had a little bit of this core through the leadership development was how I connected that to self esteem, you know, and inner beauty was was kind of my bridge to to this space. What did you think would come out of the degree? Well, originally, I was focused on writing workshops for teen and tween girls on self-esteem. And within my first six months of my master's program, I realized that I wasn't going to be able to make a living selling these self-esteem workshops to nonprofits, Girl Scouts, Girls Incorporated, unless I went and worked for one of those full time, I wasn't going to be able to have the lifestyle that I wanted in New York City. And so one of my friends suggested me, why don't I price it for the affluent market? So all of these teen girls who are going to the private schools in Manhattan, who, you know, there's a lot of struggles there, why don't I price the curriculum and the program for them? And so I did that. And that's that's kind of how it moved into a little bit more of this business. It grew into a business model by shifting from focused on self-esteem for teen and teen girls and selling it to nonprofits to going direct to families. Wow. And what did a workshop for private school teenage girls in New York City, what did that consist of? Well, we actually would use the Myers-Briggs type indicator, the personality assessment at first to kick off a connection. We would have a conversation about peers and friends, standing in truth, identifying their values, finding their strengths, and then having some mapping in goals and action items, supporting them, whether it might be with getting a first job or an interview or maybe an after school program that they wanted to participate and so building by by creating positive momentum and action, that's a way that you could build self-esteem and then having them also connect with the peers that they were they were really drawn to. And also it, in many ways it was being a like a big sister. Yeah. And it was like hundreds of girls that went through these? No, these these at this time were one-on-one. Oh, they were one-on-one. Yeah. Did you feel, you know, moving from selling through social programs to like upper presumably upper east and west side New Yorkers did did that cause you any like discomfort? It didn't then, but when I moved into my more formal career with the Redwoods Initiative, focused on high net worth families, then then I would say I had this internal questioning. But I would say it came more from others. So people would hear about my work with the affluent or and why, you know, they have everything they need. Why? Wh- and why don't you work with nonprofit kids, right? You know, or, or the, the the lower income community because they have everything. So it was the external questioning that then made me question internally: Why am I doing this? And I had to wrestle with that for a while. I'll share with some of the work that I'm doing. It's a struggle 
that I have often because even this podcast audience is like highly educated, very privileged, financially, professionally secure audience. And there's a part of me, it comes ex- from the ex- exterior, like like you said as well, but it also is interior. It's like, wow, like this is the group that needs the least amount of help on kind of inner inner self, like working on themselves or or actually like true suffering, you know, or they suffer the least kind of in the continuum. And I, I say that with like no no answer, right? Because it, to some extent, it is my ability to talk to that group that makes it powerful to that group being a part of it. But at the other t- end, there is a financial consideration that like we all need to create businesses that can survive, sustain themselves. You can't just do everything philanthropically. But there is, I, I'd be lying, and, and I've said this on the podcast before, that there is a part of me that is, that gnaws, that it like gnaws a bit at me that, that there is this, there is a large group of people that could really benefit from exposure to this type of conversation or ideas that is not directly spoken to. And I don't want to use guilt but there is some guilt in there that, you know, you're not doing more for people who need more. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would connect it to, you know, when I think about this demographic, let's say the, the influencers or affluent or high net worth, etc. You know, we all deserve, no matter our socioeconomic background, the opportunity for self-inquiry and self-discovery. Right? And specifically with this demographic, I often talk about them as hyper agents, right? They have this opportunity to exponentially make impact in the world because of their access to resources. They can call up a CEO. They have access to great education and healthcare. And so if you can support that influence in a positive multiplier and exponential hyper agent effect, then they can do so much world, more in the world philanthropically with impact investing, with leading their companies, for creating great programs for their employees, encouraging meditation and, you know, a search for whole self just yeah. because they're doing it themselves. So that's how I would say I reconcile it within. And, you know, I think especially in this society – being affluent or having wealth is, a, is in many ways, it's a burden. It's, a, it's an awesome opportunity. But then it's a double-edged sword because everyone thinks that the grass is always greener on the other side. And there are still complexities and issues when it comes to having resources. So that, that's being able to connect with anyone with compassion is awesome. Yeah. I was talking to my coach about this the other day and he's like, man, that's some Christian guilt you got going on there. And I'm not even Christian or religious for, for that matter. So you mentioned it in passing, but probably we're around the time period of when Redwoods starts. Explain to our listeners what what Redwoods is and how you started it. Sure. So it's an investment education company. So we teach folks that are new to wealth about business and finance. So what are stocks and bonds to asset allocation to what is Wall Street and how to engage with their portfolio and their advisors. I also help run family meetings and this is for ages 18 and up. So it's adult learning, right? I'm not working with kids here with the Redwoods Initiative. So I'm in the private wealth market supporting folks learn about how to be better stewards and managers of their resources. 
All right, this is where I need like a hold up moment. Like, <laughs> there's been a through way, through line in this conversation. You're a broke, to use your words, B-rate model in New York City, teaching workshops for self-esteem to private school women, girls. And now you're teaching wealthy people about stocks and, and bonds and, and how to manage their wealth. I guess the first question is like, how the F did, did one lead to the other? Very simple. One of my private coaching clients, her father was a lawyer, and he really loved the program that I did with his daughter. And he knew the partners of a wealth management firm who were looking to develop an education program internally for the families of the wealth that they managed. And so it was a simple introduction. I had done great work for a family individually. And then there was this opportunity for this firm to build out financial education programming and they called me. So it was a meeting. And there, we want to build this education program, you know, about creating curriculums. How much did you know about markets and- Zero. Zero. I didn't know what a stock or bond was. I didn't know what Goldman Sachs was or did. I didn't know what a multifamily office was. I had zero portfolio. What are you, an artist? I had zero knowledge and financial education. So so what I studied at NYU was curriculum development. That's what I love to do is to be able to write workshops. So one of the things that I think I learned from FFA. Remember that example where I said I could talk to a five-year-old and then the superintendent? I was able to ask very direct, curious questions of awesome, smart people who might even be seen, quote, powerful or of influence and, and, and discover and learn. And I was in what I was being trained to do at NYU was to take something complicated and simplify it in ways that anyone can understand and learn. So if you can do that with finance, you know, then maybe you have a job or a career. But going back, so this is really intriguing. You could talk to the student or the superintendent and you could ask you can ask them simple questions. I, I forget exactly what you said, but you could basically engage them in a way where you could learn from them. And I guess, is it part of like holding your own in the conversation? Well, what, what was it? Either how could you do it or why can't most people do the thing that you just described? Writing content or understanding something that's complex of someone else, whether it's how they're feeling or it's the business that they've created, it takes curiosity and it takes patience and it can get a little messy. So when I write curriculum and I'm working with like big minds, right? I've, I've done this before in developing an anomaly curriculum, a word I didn't even know of just like stocks and bonds. You know, he's a PhD genius, right? And here I am, a layman, not even understanding the words, just asking these questions over and over again. But for some reason, he or she trusts me. There's, a, there's just, I, I, I don't know if it's energetic. I don't know if it's my, the way I come in with confidence, if it's the calming nature that I bring to the process. But whatever that formula is, whenever there could have been more of that frustration, we're able to break through that. And then it would be messy. I would, my first draft of curriculums would be wrong. And I mean, from a, from a self-esteem point of view too, that's really painful. Like now I know I'm going to write several drafts and usually the first 
one I present is really bad. Like it's totally off. But sometimes that allows us to clear the space. So, yeah, I think it's just this this trust in this process of just listening, but then being engaged like it's this eye-to-eye contact of like being curious and and going back and and saying let's get there we're gonna do this and you used a word energetic maybe you said why will they engage with me in this way maybe it's energetic and and i love that you use that because most listeners would just like call bs on that they're like ah like you guys and you're like woo talk like that stuff doesn't really work but here it's like you have zero experience in I don't I, I don't think it's that complicated but like in one of the more complicated or perceived to be complicated industries and you're able to interact at a deep and inquisitive way to get to the heart of the matter I do think that it's energy and, and I'm I'm agreeing with you and I think that in energy this is just my interpretation of it there's a way that you carry yourself. There's the way that you look at people, like the way you make eye contact, the way you might fidget or not fidget. And that all comes the, the way you breathe. Like people, people pick up on that. And I think that especially a crowd of, of people who are very much like performance and metric oriented, it, this type of energy gets lost on people. But you know what it is? And I and I challenge any listener who's like, eh, I don't know what you're talking about. Like, you know who that person is when they walk into the room. And they're not always the smartest. Usually they're not the smartest. Usually they're not the most successful. But there's something about that person that kind of transcends the room. Yeah, I'd agree with you there. And I think too, that we can build this as a muscle. Because when I was launching Redwoods, I was, you know, any new business it was, it was struggling, right? And I went back to my original acupuncturist, right? Talk about energy. And we, have the, we have Mr. Broker, Dr. Green. And this is and Suzanne Hill. Suzanne, yeah. the, the acupuncturist. <laughs> yes, who then led me to Colette Sybil, who's a voice coach. Okay. So I went into my acupuncturist. I'm like, I'm struggling here, you know, just like energetically. I'm, I'm anxiety. It's just not working. Like I felt like I was selling. It was after six months of no business coming in the door. And I was, I walked into a meeting and I just went straight to, so how can we work together? Which is not my style. It's about building trust and relationship and you listen and then you creatively figure out how you can work together. And she said, look, I can't help you, but what I'm hearing is the anxiety in your voice. And she said, in your voice, it's what the pitch that's sounding to me is like you're going back to a little girl. You're afraid. And she said, so I want you to go see Colette, who's a voice coach, and work with her for three or five times. And even though I was trained in public speaking, yeah, and I could speak like in front of like 10,000 people. Since age 10 or right, whatever. Yeah, yeah. To, to now with my business, I still needed to take that energetic voice to another level and create a sense of calm and confidence with it. And so I signed up for these programs and it was one of the most powerful experiences because even though I went in, this is powerful, even though I went in to help me with confidence and my tone and my expression in business, to step into womanhood versus going back into the fear of being more like a, a child's voice. Plus, I'm from the South, so it can become nasally and a little high-pitched. So what Colette worked with me on is coming into my body, you know, getting into my diaphragm, and just being able to say my true voice, my true name, like, I'm Abby. And the first time I did that, I bawled. 
I cried because it was the first time I heard my name in my true voice. And the best thing about those three coaching sessions is it gave me enough confidence to tell Pierre that I loved him. I went in thinking I was going in for business, but I came out being able to express my true love for my life partner. So that's how powerful. And now I have even some of the parents who are on boards of multinational companies go and see Colette for voice coaching. Wow. And and so is it like Toastmaster? No, no. it breaks you down. Like it's so powerful. So you go to Ripley Studios with the actor studios. Because you imagine like the old you with your suit and tie, right? Or even me now, you know, with, with black jeans or whatever, but I'm not an actor. So you go to these actor studios, she rents out and you literally have, you have to wear comfortable like jogging workout clothes and you're moving around and you're like, your hands and your arms are wide open and you're like saying butter yellow all across like the ceiling and you're moving your face. So it's very playful and it's uncomfortable, but you have to get into your body. And so you were trying, I guess we went off the path, but you were, you had started this education business for these wealthy families after a few of those meetings that that initial meeting and you were you were in a point where you're trying to get new business well yeah actually the 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 timeline there was so this was in 2005 and i worked with this one firm for five years part-time though and so we worked with about 40 families and i built this financial education program also incorporating the self-discovery the mbti all that self-esteem and then we would have conversations about wealth and money and then philanthropy and impact so i did that for five years part-time while i was working with my mentor jerry byrne who's a media and entertainment executive and a philanthropist so that's where i really learned about like business relationship and deals was from him and then i had this practical product that we had built and tested for five years within this firm. So then in 2010, with the firm's blessing, it was time to leave being an assistant of Jerry's. I was turning 30. You know, I had this entrepreneurial spirit of really wanting to, you know, build something on my own. That was the official launch of the Redwoods Initiative. From the business model perspective, I find it confusing that these are people you're 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 in the high net worth and 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 up there realm of of individuals that they need help understanding their money. Where was the pain point for these types of of families around around money? Well, let's take two different types of families for the pain point. One is there's someone in private equity or an entrepreneur who's built a business, and it wasn't until his sixties that he had a liquidity event. And, you know, he probably through his 40s and 50s really struggled, wondering if, you know, the roof was going to still be over the head, right? And so there's this liquidity event at age 16. He probably has maybe kids in their 25, 35-year-old range. So they didn't grow up with this. And they might be arts majors or history majors or teachers or doctors. And so they they didn't study finance or business. And now there's a need to because he or she, this entrepreneur, has decided to gift some assets, some money to them. So that's one way. Another way is is it's multi-generational. So there is someone who's already passed away and it's inherited across the generations. And again, you have these individuals who, when they're of a certain age, they get access to their trust or maybe they marry into a family and they don't have a background in business or finance. And they are very smart, capable, working, awesome folks who 
just don't know anything about stocks and bonds. And so it's it's an education curriculum. You know, and then we take it to another level because then you talk about philanthropy and impact and family dynamics. But yeah, I think that's that's the pain point is there's a gap in knowledge. Yeah, I would imagine because the topic of self-exploration has come up many times in our conversation. How does the self-exploration piece link to the wealth piece? It gets to the question, what is the purpose of the wealth if we can't live fulfilled lives? And in order to live a fulfilled life, we have to look at our whole selves and find out what our passion is and what direction do we really want to go. So that's the link right there. What's the purpose of the wealth? Why have it if you can't live, have the opportunity to live a fulfilled life? And this is what's so, I have chills now because it's, I wouldn't say naive, but I know that when you think of multi-generational wealth, I mean, just just when you describe it that way, that's like a lot of freaking money. You just assume, you being me, but presumably our listeners, that like they want to be the artist, they can be the artist. They want to not, you know, travel for for gap years or live in New York as a nonprofit. But there's that assumption, at least in my mind, that they have it all figured out. Like because the wealth was there, that was the hard part. Get the wealth, and then all those things will fall into place. How do you respond to that? Well, I think every family's different. You know, some families have an expectation that their children should work in the family business. And that means that if their passion is in arts or in social media and the family business is in manufacturing, they may not live a very fulfilled life if that's the pressure that the family has put on them. So it's having these conversations and dialogues and to have an opportunity for them to, you know, possibly step out of the family business. But I have this visual of someone who is involved in an enterprise family. And that, so the average individual has five areas of influence, right? We have our family, we have our friends, we have our work or our school, we might have some type of connection to a faith, dogma, religion, and then we have some type of recreational sport, right? That's in general, that's what we that those are areas of influence. Wouldn't there be like local community? Local, in there somewhere? Y- yeah, okay, so six, right? So when you're involved in wealth, your world instantly doubles, then you think about the bigger impact of philanthropy. You have to worry about your accountant, your attorney, your wealth advisor. Maybe you have an education person like me. You might have a wealth psychologist. You have, you know, the insurance provider, the risk mitigator. And so there's all these other areas of influence that come in. And many times you can spend so much energy just managing that, that it takes away from this opportunity of self-exploration. So I think also, too, you know, it's a dialogue that you have with people that if this, if you have this wealth and this this opportunity, what are your passions and and pursue them? Yeah, I would imagine with that wealth comes a set of expect the expectations. They're not heavier because that that's all relative to what. But I would imagine that the the flavors of expectations can be heavy, right? Because because you have the expectation of knowing what what you should be doing if you don't have to work or the expectation of working in the family business like that i mean we know we all know the families are messy and then spouses come in and like the family becomes potentially more me- more confusing and so so i would imagine that the 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 expectation i, rem- I always remember this jim carrey quote in which he says 
I wish m- more people were rich and famous because then they would under- they would have an understanding of how not fun it is. I'm 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 butchering it, and, and you know it's not my role or this podcast role to say who the haves and who the have-nots are. But there's a very clear belief in our listeners and myself included that once I achieve this milestone X, my life will begin. And so to hear you talk about the wealthy families and things that they might be working through, it's like, oh, well, they hit X. So then then their lives began much earlier than mine. But personally, I also know that my whole life has been when X happens, then I'll be happy. And every single time X happened, and I've been very fortunate to have kind of through sheer force in some cases and luck in others, to have X happen and it wore off very quickly. And then, you know, that's what got me into this journey where I really realized that it wasn't going to be from the attainment of X. Like, yes, that makes everything easier, but that true sense of satisfaction, of fulfillment, of meaning was not going to come from an X. It was going to come from a deeper feeling from within, of which one of them could be facing things that I didn't like about myself. Right. Right. And also when you got to that X, there was a whole process that you went through. And so as an entrepreneur, you earned it, right? It was your hard work, your talent, maybe a little bit of luck that got you there. And for those that inherit money, they didn't earn it. They were born into it. And so they've gotten the X, right? They won the prize, but they didn't earn it. So there's a feeling of self-worth that is connected to it. And I'll I'll be the first to say that the people that I work with are values-driven families. They come to work with me because they want to sign up for an education program. They want to learn and they want to be great stewards. And we always say we get them in the door with financial education, but they leave on a path having learned about themselves and feeling heard and listened to because I can guarantee you many of these people don't talk about what it means to be wealthy. When they're going to college, their roommate they're probably not having a dialogue about a trust fund. They're hiding it. So there's this piece of themselves as well that is hidden. And so it's a safe place with me and the faculty or maybe in a community that they can at least share about this. And then and then they move they they move through it. Yeah. You know, it's 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 not a lifelong process, hopefully. It's just a period of time. It's such a nice reminder though that the work, the work of self-exploration, it's part of the human condition. It is it is not, oh, that, that group doesn't have to think about it, and this group has to think about it more. It's just like, that's, that's being human. You and I have talked about the shadow. I guess for our listeners, actually, I would love to hear, what's, what is your description of the shadow? The shadow is the unmanifested, unconscious, hidden parts of ourselves that we've disowned, that we haven't yet uncovered and really had a conversation with. And stepping into the shadow is getting to know the pain, the darkness, the things that we don't think exist within us. And so that's that's what I would call the shadow. The shadow is our pain. Mm. Can you give an example? Not not your if you want to, but in just general terms so people can can understand and and I'll I'll tell you what I think my shadow is, but I want to hear your answer first. <laughs> 
either paraphrased or personal. You you pick. I don't want to put you on the spot. In that no, I that. always go to the honest. <laughs> so you're you're gonna. I, as I said, I just came from my own therapy, so you've got the rawness, right? In me, I have part of my shadow has been anger and and a bit of a temper at times, and with my partner Pierre, you know, it's it's something that when I get challenged, you know, it just comes up, and it's a painful place to be in and to sit in and own. And so stepping into the anger and into the shadow is is well, where does it come from? You know, is it a fear? Is is a lack of you know? Even though I'm. I'm my hopefully my life's work is about self-discovery and personal growth and self-esteem, but it is it is this I'm not good enough or and it's a it's a message that I was taught, you know, that society can teach us. So that that's that's my my example. But for others, their shadow is is if someone's if you hate that someone's always late right? And they never meet deadlines. And it's just something that makes you so frustrated. It's looking back into yourself and saying, well, where is that in me? You know, do I do that to anyone else? Do I do it to myself? Maybe. Do I not reach my own deadlines? Mm -hmm. When did you start to want to inquire about your shadow or to know that you even needed to? It was themes. It came up in a book. came up, I went to the Hoffman process. I heard you speak you know, and you talked about the shadow. I'm now working on a new curriculum with another acupuncturist and the shadow came up as well. So it was all these like patterns and themes and all of my reading that it just kept on popping up. And so I felt like I, I wanted to dive into that a little bit more and like you have a conversation with others about it to dive into the pain and then create some healing. And once we learn the power of our shadow and incorporate it, like then it's whew, there's there's freedom. So it sounds relatively recent in, in your in your own life, the kind of discovery and the want, willingness to engage with the shadow. Yes. I mean, I would say actually in the last two months has been, no, it's been two years that the shadow, I've seen the pattern, but it's only in the last two months that I've started to really read the books on the shadow and now working with someone else to co, co-build a, a curriculum, a workshop on oh, stepping wow. into the shadow. Interesting. Where, so I'm going to ask, I don't want to forget the question, so I'm going to ask it, but then talk, I want to answer with, with my own shadow. My shadow was, is, because I don't think you ever, it doesn't go away. You just learn to converse with it. My shadow is around mortality, but it's a weird, it's, it's complex because there's a part of it that is very much abandonment, like, like a fear of losing loved ones. There's another part of it that is egocentric, which is like, I, I wrote this the other day. I said, I believe that at the kind of like on my day of, I'm not religious, but on my day of judgment, that for some reason there's like, you know, when you're doing a PhD thesis, like at the end, there's a critique where all these people. So I think like on my last days, there'll be a critique and it's like, okay, what have you accomplished in said life of yours? And they'll be like, well, I was a managing director and then I was a good father. And then like I had a podcast that a couple people listened to. And then, and then like someone's going to like thumbs up or thumbs down me. And again, I don't even believe in heaven or hell or anything, but it's just like wanting that acceptance. So, so there is this ego part to, to know that I mattered at the end of my days but then there's also another part, which is, have I lived a meaningful life? And all three of those versions of the shadow are there. Like you could lump them in and I have lumped them 
and you heard me in a talk as like a fear of of death, fear of dying. But when you really like like split them and they're all like they're actually very to to put them all under that one moniker is actually very disingenuous and yes like there is a fear of abandonment and and maybe the question me leaning into that shadow is well we're all going to lose loved ones and so how do you make every moment with them count like it, maybe that's the best the best you can do, or maybe that is the most the most beautiful and, and divine. You know, I'm mean, look at me using religious religious terminology as a somewhat atheist. And then the middle part, it's like you know, it's ego. It's living in New York. It's like the rat race. It's wanting wanting to win, but but that's probably the the toughest part of separating identity from achievement. Not completely, but not believing that every piece of your self-worth is a manifestation of, of your yourself. And then the last piece is uh, around living a meaningful life. Again, that's something you can do more intentionally. It doesn't mean quit your job and start a podcast, but it does mean to look at the shadow. I mean, it's almost circular. By looking at the shadow, I was able to tap into that at a, at a much deeper level. And so bringing us to today, how do you spend your time these days? So with Redwoods, we're now eight years old. So I spend some time working with families and speaking and continuing to write content. But through the whole journey of the Redwoods Initiative was this theme of self-discovery, right? So every family or individual I've worked with, we've identified core values or we've talked about goals and, you know, what is their action plan? And so during a period of two years ago, when I finally finished my master's thesis after nine years, I had taken some time off to finish that. I took a little bit more time to build a new curriculum, which is called the Blank Canvas Method. So it's a self-discovery workshop. And so that's what I'm spending my time doing, trying to get the message out there and build a new brand and create content to help like you drive people towards this inner inquiry and living fulfilled lives. And how does one partake in a blank canvas workshop? They're either in person or in a group setting. So it's four to five hours, depending on what you choose. And it's a process, a guided, facilitated curriculum. And we use markers and there's literally a blank canvas in front of you and there's drawing and there's music and there's good food, discussion exercises, internal reflection that actually identifies values, you look at your whole self, and then you create an action plan. Where can our listeners go to learn more about all of these things? And I'll put them all in the show notes too, including the picture of Alfredo. Yeah. So all of the information is on abbyrafael.com, R-A-P-H-E-L.com. Awesome. Thank you so much, Abby. It's been so fun. Thank you. It's been fun. It's flown by. Wow. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Rad Awakenings podcast. For more information on all things RAD, including our weekly email newsletter, please visit us at radreads.co. This podcast is a labor of love and funded by the community's generosity. And if you're interested in supporting us, please join us as a patron by visiting patreon.com slash radreads. And of course, leaving a five-star review always goes a long way. Thanks again, and until next time.